Miracles are rare in sport, but that's what makes them so special. And Formula One has a history of producing them. The crowd has saved their biggest cheers for Mark Webber. This is also a moment to savour for fellow Aussie and team boss Paul Stoddart. That's the team's best result for eight years. Not only is it the most famous two points in the history of Formula One, but it is the only time there's ever been two podiums in Formula One. Minardi's Melbourne miracle in 2002, when Australia's Mark Webber finished fifth on his debut, is a fairy tale that lives long in the memory of former team boss Paul Stoddart. That day, I realised was literally as we passed the chicken fag that we needed some champagne and I literally said to our catering staff go and borrow some champagne they didn't have to all the other <laughs> I still get emotional now all the other teams were walking down with cases of champagne oh really true story the champagne may have been on ice for most of Minardi's 21 years in F1 but Stoddart clearly knew a world champion when he saw one he gave Fernando Alonso his first drive in F1. What I saw in him that day was this is a guy that's destined to be world champion, even before he'd even got in an F1 car, and I wasn't wrong. Hello, it's Tom Clarkson here, and welcome to F1 Beyond the Grid and a fantastic chapter of Formula One folklore. Paul Stoddart is a hugely successful Australian businessman. He owns an airline and is also the former boss of the Minardi Formula One team. He took it over on the eve of the 2001 season and was immediately concerned that his cars would be too slow to qualify for his home race, the season-opening Australian Grand Prix. But with rookie Fernando Alonso behind the wheel, they comfortably made the grid. We talk about the first time Paul realised Alonso would be a world champion, why age isn't catching up with the Spaniard just yet, and how he can be a success at Aston Martin. Alonso left Minardi in 2002 and was replaced by Mark Webber, who immediately became a hero with that shock fifth-place finish on debut in Australia. Stoddart gets quite emotional reflecting on that race as the whole paddock celebrated their achievement. Paul also explains why Michael Schumacher is the nicest guy you could ever wish to meet and how Max Verstappen showed true world champion potential as a youngster in 2003 by beating his dad Jos in a simulator. Paul remembers his time in Formula One with fantastic clarity and has many great memories. We caught up at his company HQ in Ledbury in the UK just before the start of the season. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Paul, thank you for your time. It's great to have you on the show. Five glorious years in Formula One as owner of Minardi in the 2000s. Can we start by reflecting on your day of days, Melbourne 2002? How do you reflect on that one? Well, first of all, it's uh, nice to be talking to you, mate. Um, Melbourne was, it wasn't just the day, it was the whole week. So, that week, we were flying our first 747, the other part of the business. The airline was flying its first 747. So we turned up to a, a brass band, red carpet, being met by the Premier of Victoria, 
um, all the fanfare that goes with it in our own 747 jet with all the cars on board, including our two-seaters. And uh, we were, the, I suppose, the heroes of Melbourne. I mean, Mark was definitely the hero of Melbourne. And this is all the week before the Grand Prix, so we're just expecting to have all the press and all the hype and all the good things that happen when you've got a home town boy in me um, as the team owner and a, uh, a home country driver as in Mark Webber um, so we had a lot of fanfare and everything and we're, we're worried about the cast you know we're, we're knowing that we're going to struggle to get Alex Young our second driver to qualify because you still had the 107% rule then so we have all the build up by the time we get to sort of Saturday for the serious stuff with qualifying it's pouring rain in Melbourne which does happen from time to time and I remember talking to the track commentator out the front of the Minardi garages after we'd done our first run. And Mark was uh, in 12th and Alex was in, I think, 17th, but he was within 107%. And uh, the track commentator said to me, Paul, I guess you want all these fans to get out there and uh, pray for the sun to come out so you can have another run. I said, hell no, I want them to do a rain dance. I want it to stay how it is because we're safely inside the 107%. And I kid you not, all those fans in that stand opposite the main straight literally stood up and did their version of a Mexican wave and the clouds opened up and it poured and that was it. So we were qualified. So I thought, right, we've done our first bit. So the next day, the race. And I thought, right, well, we're in. We've got both drivers in, and that really mattered because all our money that year was coming from Malaysian government. And, you know, having the Malaysian driver not qualify at the first race would not have gone down very well with our sponsor. So off we go. Famous accident. Cars everywhere. And our two cars get through. And I'm thinking to myself, can't believe our luck. You know, we, we might get a, you know, if we're really lucky, we might get a top 10 finish here with Mark. But not long into the race, about lap three, I find out that Mark's got a terminal differential problem. It wasn't expected to last more than another five or ten laps. So we've got out of the 53 laps we're worrying virtually from lap five that we may find ourselves with a DNF. Um, so anyway, as the race progresses and different other cars pull up, etc., etc., we find ourselves in the closing laps in fifth place. And not just in fifth place, but we had Mika Salo, who was a driver well-known to me, in the Toyota, which was their first race, right behind in sixth and closing on Mark very fast. And we had Alex Young, believe it or not, in seventh. So Minardi was fifth and seventh. So we expected to lose fifth to Salo. And then coming out of turn three, unexplainably, and I've seen it and I've spoken to Mika privately over the years, he spun. And when he spun, he basically spun for no reason there was just no reason for that Toyota to spin anyway it cemented us getting um, fifth place now Michael Schumacher who came to our after party after all that happened that we just did an impromptu party um, said after the podium Baricello, Michael and Todd invited me and Mark into the Ferrari garage and uh, uh, Michael said he said Do you know what for the last three laps he said I thought the race was over the crowd were on their feet and he said I was just catching the diamond screen and they're just focused on on you Mark you know nobody cared and he said when I won the race I went up to the podium and yeah there's a hundreds maybe a thousand people in front of me I looked left down the pit lane and there were tens of thousands <laughs> of people down the end with you and Mark and of course 
in Formula One history, it is the not only are they the most, as it was in those days, two points for fifth place, not only is it the most famous two points in the history of Formula One, but it is the only time there's ever been two podiums in Formula One. Ron Walker, bless him, came up to me and Mark and said, come with me, you've got to go up on the podium. Steve Brax, who was the Premier of Victoria at the time, was up there. And he was generally allowed to do two podiums. And I'm immediately thinking, hell, we're going to lose our points here. And I'm saying, Ron, have you cleared this with Max and Bernie? Yes, 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 I've cleared it. I said, are you sure? Because they can strip us for the points. He said, yes, I've absolutely cleared it. So Mark and I, looking somewhat a little bit nervous, go up on the podium. The crowd is just unbelievable. They've now filled the pit lane. And we've got, I don't know, easy 10,000 people standing out there. And, of course, they've got the champagne up there. And they gave us boxing kangaroos, believe it or not, um, because couldn't give us trophies and Australian flag and all that good stuff. And then music started. And I thought, oh, no, please don't play the national anthem. You know, we will be done for this. And to all expat Australians, the old Qantas theme song, I still call Australia home, is pretty emotional. And that's what they played. So you had me and Mark in tears, champagne going everywhere, a very happy Melbourne crowd. And still, 21 years later to this day, when I go back to Melbourne each year, people say, you remember when you won that race back in 2002? <laughs> it felt like a win, didn't and it? And it did. And to top yeah. that off, it's the only time I've personally driven my two-seater around a live racetrack. So what was organised on that Sunday was that at midday I would go and do three laps with a passenger. And so that was all pretty spectacular. But, of course, I remember... Charlie Whiting, bless him, saying to me, Paul, don't you go off. It's too late. We do not have any time to clean the track up. Whatever you do, do not go off. So I did the out lap. I did the flying lap. And on the in lap, I started to be stupid and wave to the crowd because they were all going crazy. And just coming out of turn three, I'm waving to the crowd and the next thing I'm in the gravel. And I thought, oh, God, if ever there's a God out there, please get me through this gravel. And I managed to drive through it and come out the other side. I did put stones all over the track, but I'm not responsible for that famous first lap incident. What did Charlie say? Um, He didn't speak to me. (laughs) Paul, of all of the Melbourne Grand Prix I've been to, that is the one. It's the moment. It it focused on Melbourne Grand Prix for their 20th anniversary did a survey of the most fantastic moments in the 20 years, we're number one. Absolutely. We a, the, the fifth yep. place with Mark Webber, but also, you know, there was the incident at the first corner. Yep. The, the race just had it all. Even the rain well, the me, previous day that you Let me tell you something about. else about that night, right? It was the first race that Murray Walker, the great famous Murray Walker, had not done. And Murray was a good friend of mine. And that particular night, I rang Murray from the track at about nine o'clock in the evening just before I was going over to see the marshals to thank them. And so Murray was in tears. He was in floods of tears because he knew what it meant. And that was a great moment. But then we walked across the other side of the track to the marshals' tent where they have their after-race party. And the marshals that were down there came and spoke to me, two of them. And they said, do you know what? Once those Minardis went through, there was nothing. We ran out of cranes, and they did, and we... We, the marshals, carried that last Sauber off the track so they wouldn't put the red flag out. And that's a true story. The marshals carried 
that Sauber. They ran out of all recovery vehicles they had and they still had one car in a dangerous position and they just grabbed the car, about 16 of them apparently. So I've never been able to find it on the tapes, but I believe the story because um, it was told with you such sincerity. You just had everyone batting for you, we didn't did. you? You we really did. did. Now, how were the emotions in those closing oh. laps? Because you say the diff problem, well, you expect it to go at any time. Well, a lot of people that know me know I'm a horrible chain smoker. But I was pretty good. The only three people I know that used to occasionally sneak a, a cigarette on the pit wall was Flavio, good old Nicky Lauda, and me. And we all really didn't do it very often. And like we really didn't. That day, I've, you know, there's a lot of shots of me with my head down. And luckily, you can't see the cigarette smoke. But I was so nervous. And I kept having, again, sadly, we miss him, John Walton, our team manager at the time. And... Uh, John said to me, he said, Paul, just calm down. It's not over. It's not over. And I remember those words time and time again. It's not over. It's not over. But when it was over, I, I mean, it wasn't just me. There was all of the mechanics, everyone. I mean, they're just bawling their eyes out. And another little story that perhaps might be interesting to your listeners, teams like Minardi don't keep, you know, cases of Moet Chardon or Verve Clicquot. We don't have champagne. Um, because what for? We're not going to use it. And that day, I realised, it was literally as we passed the check of fag, that we needed some champagne. And I literally said to our catering staff, go and borrow some champagne. Tom, they didn't have to. All the other... <laughs> I still get emotional now. All the other teams were walking down with cases of champagne. Oh, really? True story. That's fantastic, yep. isn't it? Formula One is a family, actually. Uh, for all of the politics and the behind-the-scenes bickering that you sometimes hear, it is a family with everybody passionate about that what probably they Probably more than most, because obviously you're now other guys with the airline. We used to fly a lot of the teams, you know. So yeah. um, in 2002, that particular year, we used the 747 to go to the flyaway races. We used to have Jordan. We used to have some of the McLaren engine boys. We used to have Jaguar. Um, Murray Walker, of Murray course, Walker, you just mentioned. Yeah, he although used to fly in 2002 he stopped. But, yeah, no, we had uh, four or five teams. I mean, I remember some horrendous things that we did on the flights, <laughs> which I'm not going to go <laughs> I into. I came on a few of them, um, Yeah, there's, uh, we, we but, certainly worked hard and played hard. But, Stoddy, we're sat in Ledbury in the UK, you know, at the HQ of European Aviation, your business, clearly hugely successful business. I just wanted to ask... Given how much you've achieved in your business life, where does that weekend in Melbourne 2002... No question. No question. Of everything you've done in your life. Happiest day in my life. And I've sold businesses for a lot of money. Nothing touches that Sunday in March 2002. It was just... It was, was, as I said at the start of this, it wasn't just the day. The Sunday was obviously fantastic, but it was the whole week before that. I mean, as I mentioned, that you know, we had a Malaysian sponsor. So we had uh, Dr M, the Malaysian Prime Minister. I remember poor old uh, John Prescott, who was the um, Deputy PM of the UK. I remember him having to wait out in the anteroom when he was trying to catch a flight back to England because Dr M, the Prime Minister, was in his Prime Minister's office in KL with me on the floor working out what decals to put, you know, Go Malaysia, all these various decals, where to put them on the car. And I walked out and I, I just said to John, I said, John, 
I'm really sorry, it wasn't me, it was Dr. M. <laughs> and things like that. So, I mean, we on the way to Australia, we'd come through Malaysia. We'd pulled up to the VIP terminal, the Prime Minister's terminal, had all the Malaysian press, etc., etc. We even did a run with the two-seaters around the Twin Towers in uh, KL, and I had to drive that one. And I sort of remember in the afternoon we went to the rehearsal and I said, guys, what are all these white seats? They've all got white covers on them, right in line with where I'm supposed to pull up in the two-seater. I said, oh, that's where the PM and the captain are going to be sitting. And I said, you've got to be joking. How can they... If I have, you know, I've got cold tyres, I've got cold brakes, and I've got an electronic throttle, if that thing goes open throttle, it won't matter if I stand on the brakes. That's what I'm going to wipe out, all the cabinet. And they said, oh, that won't happen. I said, well... You better hope it doesn't. I said, have you got a medivac helicopter? And I was well, in Zama, the pilot. And uh, they said, yeah. I said, well, I'll tell you what, if something goes wrong, I'm going to be straight in there, kick the pilot out, and I'll be in Singapore in 20 minutes. <laughs> anyway, obviously nothing went wrong. Melbourne 2-2. You'd owned Minardi for, what, 15 months, I yep. think, at that time. What did that result do for the team? Well, first of all... Minardi that year, we had, it's strange how I do remember this, but I do, we, our budget was $28 million. Now, to run an entire Formula One team on $28 million and to actually come ninth in the championship, because um, you may recall there was 11 teams that year, but Arrows sadly failed in halfway through the season, um, and Toyota, who had spent, because they started the campaign in the middle of '01 and they had spent 1.5 billion US dollars, and we beat them. So probably doesn't need to say much more than that. Um, Real David you know, and Goliath, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it was today. I mean, our, our entire budget for the f- all five years of that wouldn't match the big team's catering budget. Just wouldn't. And, you know, we, we had 18 million the first year, and I probably put an extra 15 in to get it going. We had 28 million the second year, Third year with Jos Verstappen and Justin Wilson, we were running on a 35 mil budget. Fourth year, we had uh, a little bit more. We probably were getting into the low 40s and we finished in 05 with the same sort of budget, low 40s. So, uh, you know, for value for money, I think Minardi's got the title of having the best value for every point it ever scored. Certainly. Well, look, tell us, tell us how you came to own Minardi. Well, that was a story on its own. So we're talking about the 15th of December 2000. I'm in Nice looking at buying a boat. I get a phone call from Mike Gascoigne who says, Flavio wants to talk to you. So I talk to Flavio and he says, Paul, you interested in buying a Formula One team? Uh, we looked at it with Renault engines, not going to happen. They're on their knees. You can buy them cheap. So I didn't take much more persuading than that. I literally got on the plane, um, flew my own plane over to, to dear old uh, Fianza, um, so to Forley Airport, which is near Fianza. Went and met with Giancarlo and uh, we did a deal that day. Um, so the biggest asset I bought was for Fernando Alonso was the test driver. Um, and we had no car and we had six weeks and three days to get to Melbourne. And all we had was a wooden mock-up with a Renault engine in the back. So very quickly I had to decide how to do this. But also they were very down on staff. A lot of staff had left. So we 
decided there was only one way we could do this. We had our own Formula 3000 racing team here where the two-seaters are now, and I had about 35 staff working. So we banged all the 35 staff in the, with their overnight bags in the plane, flew to Fianza, beefed up their workforce. I went and quickly did a deal with Bernard Ferguson of Cosworth. He couldn't sell me the engine and he couldn't build the engines, so I bought the rights to the engine and we turned the engines into an engine shop here, took five people from Cosworth and built our own engines. And all this was being done whilst Gunther, our first designer, was changing the mock-up to a Cosworth engined car. And we had to build all that and pay suppliers that hadn't been paid and work that was on stop and all the nightmares you get with going into a bankrupt company and get to Melbourne. So the only way we could do all of that was use all our resources and honestly it was, it's, a, it's another Minardi record. No one started a Formula One team in six weeks and three days, I can promise you that. And when we got to Australia, I come off the pit wall, Fernando finished 12th. Tasso Marquez, by the way, his car wasn't built. We only concentrated on Fernando's car and we only had the chance to do one straight line test in Italy before the freight went to Australia. And so we were building Tasso's car physically from the ground up in the pit lane in Melbourne. And so it, sadly it had an alternator failure and didn't finish the race, but Fernando finished in 12th place. And I came off the pit wall thinking, wow, you know, we got here. And I walked in and there's all these people crying in the garage. And I'm sort of looking at them and I'm thinking, what are you crying for? You know, we finished. And they're crying from pride. Nobody, nobody thought we could ever do that, but we did. And did you doubt that you could do it? Oh, mate, there were times. I mean, <laughs> In that we six-week had, period? I'll tell this story. It's a little bit naughty, but it's true. We had everybody involved. The pilots, you know, were flying us over. We had one plane dedicated to Minardi to just make sure, because we were so tight before the freight left, that to get this shakedown run, we weren't going to make it. We just weren't. And so we were all working. Like These guys that went over with an overnight bag, they stayed six weeks. They never went home. We didn't have enough hotel rooms. We used to kick people who had hot rooms. So basically, you once you did 12, 15 hours, you couldn't keep your eyes open anymore. You would go back to the Cavallino Hotel, and we had mastered keys, and literally go into a room, kick somebody who been there for 10 hours told them to go back to work and finish what you were doing and you took the bed and that was true we were about six rooms short for the people we had and we just made it work but anyway this one night when we had to have two titanium exhaust brackets that were being made up in Nottingham and if we didn't get them we couldn't we couldn't run the car just the way the way that exhaust worked and the way the whole thing worked we couldn't run the car so these two brackets I was told that they were going to be dispatched at 5 p.m. And it didn't happen. And they said 8 p.m. And they were supposed to get on a flight from Coventry. And it didn't happen. And at that point, I had the plane in Forley. And I said to the two pilots, they said to me, they said, do you want us to go back to Coventry? Because these people are clearly going to be late. And I thought about it for a few minutes because a fair bit of cost and we were not exactly flush with money. And I said, yeah, you better do it. So these two guys flew back and they sat at Coventry until 3 a.m. in the morning when those parts turned up. They put them on board you know, little tiny bag of parts, flew back to Foley. I didn't take any notice. I was staying there all night with, and so was Fernando for that matter. You know, Fernando put in plenty of all-nighters helping to build the car. And I walked outside at the factory and it was thick pea soup fog. 
I mean, you could, I couldn't see the bloody car. So I thought, oh no, you know, come on, after all this effort. And I knew the plane had gone because, you know, it was a two and a half hour flight. So I already knew they were airborne. I thought, I don't know why I'm going to do this, but I'll drive to the airport. I'm too tired to do anything else. So I drove to the airport and I couldn't see the bloody terminal from the car park. And I just sat there and sat there. And then all of a sudden, you hear this absolute roar of the thrust reversers on the BAC 111 and they're on the ground. So I wait for them to come through and we had a fantastic relationship before we, everybody just knew us, looked after us, did everything. Out they come and I said to the captain, who I won't name, I said, uh, could you see anything? And of course the back 111 has a, what's called a Cat 3 auto land, which means it lands itself. It doesn't, you don't, you know, but legally you still got to be able to see a little bit. And uh, he said, best we don't discuss that. Anyway, here's the parts. We went back, fitted the parts of the car and ran that day. And that was the only shakedown. That was on the Wednesday and on Thursday, the freight went. So it was, there were so many stories, not quite as extreme as that, but, you know, last minute things, having to offer suppliers double the money to do hours in front of somebody else's and it just went on and on. Um, and, but we did it. And the rest, as they say, is history. And how prepared were you for all of that? No, I mean, not at all. Because you sponsored I'm buying a, a boat. I'm buying a boat <laughs> in Nice. I haven't got my eyes. I had actually, no, that's actually not totally true. In 99, I tried to buy a percentage of Eddie, of uh, Jordan. And in 2000, we took a look at buying um, arrows until we did the due diligence. And then we had to walk away from that one. Um, but so, so it had I, been on your mind. Yeah, it had meant, been on yeah. my mind. I wanted to get into team ownership in F1. But believe me, in the middle of December, I did not expect to be going and buying a foreign team in a foreign country, yeah. that was the last thing on my mind. Yeah. But I'm glad I did. And you had to tell your family, Christmas is off well, this year, isn't it? No, yeah. no Christmas. Um, yeah. Christmas Day, I, I spent in the factory, yeah. Paul, just while we're on the topic of other opportunities, is it true that you, you came close to buying Tyrrell, but then British American Tobacco... Very true. So there in front of you. Ken, bless him, knew his health wasn't great and wanted to see the business be passed on before it went down. Um, I'd made an offer of $20 million. Um, BAT, had, uh, through Craig Pollock's consortium, had made an offer of a bit more than that, but they didn't want Tyrrell. They just wanted the racing entry. And so what happened is that I ended up buying all of Tyrrell's assets, everything, the cars, the, the factory, even Ken Tyrrell's desk, I mean, everything, every piece of equipment, the historical collection, everything. Um, so in I bought Ockham or, or? In Ockham, yeah. 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 So I spent, uh, so it's actually another funny story because I actually went to the Japanese Grand Prix in 98 as team principal because what happened is that the deal I'd done with, um, with Craig, with Craig Pollock, was that we bought everything that when the chequered flag went down, it belonged to us. Everything. I mean, everything. And, of course, the chequered flag went down. But, of course, when we did this deal much earlier in the year, um, there was no thought about a tyre test that might be going to happen straight after the Japanese Grand Prix. So BAT, as it was, or BAR, whichever way you want to look at it, had to ask me permission, could they use the cars again as the tyre test was coming up? And, of course, I said yes. Um, but it was, you know, it was a moment when I was on the, I was on the pit for all those years anyway because I used to be the, um, for, for Jos Verstappen, I was the pit board guy. Um, then after that, obviously, I think it was Ricardo I did in uh, 98. 99, it was Damon Hill. 
and uh, 2000 it was uh, uh, Yoss again. So yeah, had some some pretty. Were, uh, were you frustrated that you weren't able to go racing as Tyrrell? Yeah, I was. Um, yeah. I'd have loved to have had that, but but you know things are meant to happen. I mean, more recently in recent years, I found out the whole reason of how that deal happened, whilst. Bob Tyrrell was negotiating with me. Ken was negotiating with Bernie, so I never stood a chance. But and Bernie wanted BAT in the and sport. And Bernie wanted BAT in the sport. So that's, everything's meant to happen. Um, but, you know, you mentioned, or I mentioned there, Bernie. He's my hero. He is my hero. He welcomed me with open arms when I came into the sport. A few times through the years when we had little disputes, he helped me out. And Bernie is is one of the, I mean, it's a dying breed of people these days, sadly, but if he shakes your hand, that's it. I mean, I remember I needed $5 million in 02. We were really in, in the shit. We really were. And uh, and I said to him, Bernie, I'll give you a couple of 747s as security. And he just shook my hand and he said, Stoddard, just go and do what you have to do. And then, of course, the man, the, the famous or infamous Friday the 13th in Montreal in 03, when I'd, um, you know, I'd had enough, Minardi was going out of business, and we had all these T-shirts printed, and, um, yeah, we were 50 copies of the Concord Agreement that had all been printed off and put in press packs, um, and that was going to be the end of it because, and it's a long story, so I won't bore your listeners with it, but basically F1 had agreed to do um, give financial support to the three independent teams. The Jordan. Fighting Fund, yep, wasn't it? That's what we fund. called it. Yep. Yeah. Jordan, Sauber and uh, Minardi. Um, we'd given on some technical regulations where they needed our signatures back in the January of 2003 and the Fighting Fund didn't, wasn't forthcoming. So by the time we got to June, um, Minardi was on its knees. We had no money and Bernie um, initially said, you know, sort of have to sort himself out. Um, then there was this infamous press conference where it's just me sitting there for the first seven minutes before any of the other team principals that were supposed to be in that press conference turn up. And then the whole lot of them turn up, including Bernie, having had a little meeting with themselves where they were going to supply an engine to Jordan and suddenly Eddie was uh, not going to be part of the fighting fund and I was well prepared for that meeting. And I sat there with a folder, and in that folder, it had some very interesting things. And many of the documents in it had been given to me by other people. Like, for instance, Benson and Hedges saying that if Jordan didn't get the fighting fund, they were going to have to pull out. And, of course, who gave me that document? Eddie Jordan at 6am in the morning. Some stuff on other teams, um, but in particular one on Ferrari. You know, who gave me that document? Well... Unfortunately, he's passed away recently. Um, there was a story. So, you know, I was well prepared. I was also prepared to go through with it. If, if we'd have gone down, we weren't going to go down with a pack of lies being told. We were going to go down with the truth being told. And the truth at that time might have embarrassed a lot of people. It's so funny hearing you, you telling these stories because my memories of you at the time are you were absolutely prepared to say what you thought at Tell any truth, moment. Mate. You weren't going to be intimidated by anybody. The truth will always come out. Yeah. But did you enjoy the politics or did you find sadly, it exhausting? No, I didn't. Tom, in the beginning, I really didn't. You know, in 2001, when we had an incident um, in May, May the 8th, God knows how I remember these dates, when it was a public bank holiday here and I walked into that 
office that we were just down in the racing section and found we had fax machines in those days and I found that my technical director had just been poached by Toyota and had resigned there and then on the spot even though he had a two-year contract. Things like that happened and I didn't want to get involved in the politics especially with Toyota and Uwe Anderson who's a lovely guy who you know again was a quiet individual but you know we were Minardi were seriously screwed up and again Bernie comes in, deals are done, Toyota paid some compensation, all went away. In 02, of course, we had our great year, but in 03, we were in a position where we were fighting to survive. And by the time we got to that Friday the 13th in Montreal, um, it was going to be over. So we went through this press conference where effectively um, I might have I briefed one or two journalists that if it went bad, there was a few questions that might have been good to ask. And one of them asked the question, and poor old Eddie, who was sitting directly behind me and to my left, um, started to define the fact that Jordan was a race-winning team. Jordan wasn't like Minardi. Whilst he felt sorry for me, you know, um, Jordan was a race-winning team and it didn't need any charity or any fighting funds, especially after the fact that he was seven minutes late was because of the, they just promised him a free engine supply. So all this is going on, and I just opened a, a folder I had in front of me to the, the actual uh, letter that he'd given me at 6 a.m. in the morning from Benson and Hedges, saying they were had enough. And as he was going through giving his speech about how great Jordan was, I'm just banging on this letter, and he spots it, and... Because the FIA stenographer, they presented me with the actual legal record of the interviews and they've typed in this 17, um, ah, ah, um, um, ah, 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 17 of those. From EJ. From EJ, at which point he says, I've got nothing more to say. <laughs> I closed the folder. Um, but... Anyway, that all went on, and I was determined, you know, that, that night, we called a press conference, you may recall, at 5pm, we said there's going to be a Minardi press conference at 5pm. So Pasquale, um, who everybody that knows F1 will know that uh, he was Bernie's uh, uh, PA, for want of a better word, Pasquale comes to me and says, uh, Paul, Bernie needs to see you now. And I said, Pasquale, I've got a lot going on. He said, no, no, Paul, Mr Eccleston, he called him, Mr Eccleston needs to see you now. So when you get summoned, you, you go. So I go up to the tower in Canada and I walk into Bernie's office and he says, Stoddart, he said... What? Christ, sorry, did, did he call you Stoddart? Oh, yeah, yeah. Stoddart, what do you need to keep going? I said, Bernie, I need the fighting fund. He said, well, how much shit are you in? I said, I don't know, I need four mil now. He said, right, you've got it. I own half of your team. Now get on with it and stop calling press conferences. Now that was it. That was it, Tom was a handshake and by the time I got back to the motorhome in a couple of hours and I cancelled the press conference I couldn't pay any of the goddamn suppliers made it really did not want paying tires don't bother about paying from everything became free because Bernie was now a half owner of Minati and I struggled to even pay bills so and this is why you asked me why I've got so much respect for Bernie Eccleston that was on June the 13th 2003 in August of 2003, myself and my finance director went up to Princess Gate to see Bernie to actually give him the chairs and to do our deal. So I went up to his office and 
He said, Stoddard, are you out of the shed? I said, well, Bernie, you know I am. I said, most people don't want paying anymore. He said, fine, keep your shares. That's the testimony to Bernie Eccleston. Now, what he did actually put in, we gave him the money back, obviously, but that's it. And then two years later in 05, who do you think it was that introduced me to Dieter Matschersheets in Turkey? Bernie Eccleston. We've mentioned two brilliant racing drivers in Mark Webber and Fernando Alonso so far. I want to go into more detail about them in a minute, but is it a coincidence that both of those guys were managed by Flavio Briatori? Um, not really, because you've got to remember the circumstances. Both of them had links to me, but in the case of Flavio, he had Fernando's management contract and he needed to put Fernando in a race seat. So doesn't it make sense to point somebody who's going to take Fernando for no money in a race seat to buy a team that was about to go under? So Fabio's not stupid. He's a brilliant businessman um, and, you know, we, we've had a great relationship. In the case of Mark, I had Mark's contract, or 20% of it, and um, I sold that out to Nicky Lauder at the end of 2002 because... Um, we needed to pay for our engines and, and effectively my interest in Mark's contract was um, let go um, because of the fact that we needed to pay for our engines. There's a great story going around that Mark wasn't signed for the whole season in 2-2. What was the initial deal? Right, so the initial deal was a couple of races. Now, one can argue is that two or three. Um, it's verbal anyway. Um, a couple of races and we'll see how we go. And the races specifically was Australia and Malaysia. Right, well, after Australia, needless to say, we didn't need to talk about any other races. Um, he proved everything. He didn't really need to prove it to me because I already knew him from when he was driving for me in F3000. But what I wanted to make sure is that, you know, A, he didn't fit the car all that well. You know, it was tight. And I just wanted to make sure that it was going to go okay and that we were going to all get along. And so it was just provisional. But how it actually came about is even funnier because in September of 2001 at the Indy um, Formula One race of that year, Mark and I passed each other going opposite ways on an escalator in a shopping centre in Indianapolis and said hello and we started talking and he said, well, what's the chances? And I said, well, Mark, I don't know, I need, I need to get funding for the seats, so it's a, they're all I've got to sell. And at that time we were close to closing the deal with, uh, with uh, Go Malaysia or Go KL but we hadn't actually closed the deal. And I said, look, if I can do anything, um, I will have to wait till we sign the Malaysian deal. We're close, but it's not done yet. So we were doing, discussing the seat as far back as September of 2001. And I have to say that Ron Walker, bless him, was the one who really just did not leave me alone. Every five minutes, the phone's going, Paul, Paul. Can we get Mark in here? Because he get... desperately wanted an oh, Aussie on the grid for absolutely. Melbourne. Ron Walker, of course, being the, being the boss of the Melbourne Grand Prix. The boss of the Melbourne Grand Prix. He's, he's sadly passed away in 2018, but he was known as Mr Melbourne. Um, he was the person that got the Grand Prix with Bernie away from... Well, not with Bernie. He got Bernie to take the Grand Prix away from Adelaide, which was also a very popular Grand Prix. And he made sure that the government put in the support that was needed to make the Grand Prix special. And I think everybody that's involved in F1 will agree that Melbourne is special. Um, it's one of the favourite Grand Prix, if not the favourite Grand Prix of the year. But um, anyway, we went pushing 
more and more I was getting, I was just literally been driven insane in a nice way by Ron saying, come on, you know, Aussie team, Aussie driver, imagine what that's going to do for Melbourne. And so finally we signed the GoKL deal, we got the commitment from them and I was able to give Mark a free drive. And um, was there any money coming from Melbourne? Oh, Mark had a bit of Telstar sponsorship, but to be honest, it wouldn't have paid the food bill. Um, no, they, they they were hoping to get sponsorship, but you know it's not easy. What impressed you about Mark Webber? Same with Fernando, and and by the way, Mark should have been world champion in 2010. He should have been world champion. There's a feeling you you know a driver that is a real driver, a complete driver. He's not just able to drive, but he's also got the technical knowledge, the technical feedback. The feel for the car, almost people can say the feel by the seat of his pants because that's what makes a F1 driver special. And, you know, we've all got your Lewis Hamiltons, your Sebastian Vettels, et cetera, et cetera, of, of that sort of era. Obviously, Michael Schumacher, and I mean, I had the privilege of going behind Michael Schumacher of all my drivers. So I'm sorry I'm digressing here, but I just remembered this. He's the only driver out of... 70 Formula One drivers, he's the only driver that I ever got behind in our two-seater. You know, I didn't get behind Fernando, I didn't get behind Mark, I didn't get behind all the other people, the other Jensen seven world Max champions, all the, other people all the that, rest yeah, of them, yeah. right? And the day that we were down at Ferrari, um, Michael went round and there was 24 people on that team that day just running one car and we went round he went round and he shook hands and introduced himself to every single person in the team thank you for coming here today thank you for doing this and he said to me in the morning he said uh, Paul you know you should get in the back I'll give you a run and I said Michael it's your day I said you know you've got John Todd you've got Rory you should have had Ross um, you've got your wife Corinna um, Stefano Dominicali, all these people that were going to go in the car. I said, Michael, it's your day. Um, I said, I'm okay. And so we went and had, uh, we're at Ferrano and we went and had lunch in Enzo Ferrari's restaurant. Um, and Michael had gone, unbeknownst to me, out to the truck and said, uh, uh, guys, is Paul's race suit and helmet here? They said, yeah, it's in the back. Can I have it, please? So Michael walks in the middle of the restaurant, plumps all my race kit down on the table and says, I'm not asking you, I'm telling you, go and get changed. So I did seven laps behind a seven times world champion who, in my book, is the greatest driver of the era. And why did I think this? Well, because in those seven laps, the only difference in the lap times was fuel load and tyre degradation. We were passing the same on the on the bridge that goes over. There's a, a bunch of coloured bricks. My eye line was passing that same brick every time. And it was a short, sharp lesson in how to drive my own car. Evidenced by the next day, I had to drive uh, a two-seater day at Imola, not a track to be taken lightly. And I had an Austrian journalist with me and I put it in the wall on the first lap and I said to him, are you okay? Are you okay? Yeah, I'm okay all my life. I wanted to ride in a Formula 1 car and now we've crashed. Fantastic. And my heart's pumping away. And I said, afterwards I was asked, "Why? You know, how did you crash it? Because in all the years I've done 1,500 passengers myself, thousands of thousands of laps, and I only had two crashes. And that was one of them. And the journalist said to me, he said, what happened? I said, simple. I said, I did seven laps behind Michael Schumacher yesterday. 
I tried to drive the car the same way he did and I ran out of talent and that's the truth. <laughs> I just hit the wall. Um, but no, Michael was What a, what a wonderful story about Michael. And, oh, and, and, and people that don't know Michael, you know, there was a lot in the press in the years, but when you see how drivers get harassed and, and, and when I say that, it's not really harassed. They're so popular that everybody wants a piece of them and they're at a race weekend to do their racing. Mm. So you can understand why they, you know, I'm not saying I agree with it because I think the fans are ultra, ultra important, but I can understand why after a while it just gets a bit much and particularly if something's happened and Michael perhaps had a reputation he really didn't deserve. Michael was the nicest guy you could ever hope to meet and honestly he cared he went and met every one of the team when he came in and he went and said goodnight to them every time he went out he was so respectful of the job that everybody did for him I people hear don't know that, that the whole time about Michael it's Schumacher true. and it is it's but true. I think some of that reputation isn't fan related it's it's born out of Adelaide 94 Hereth 97 sure, isn't it it is uh, it is but um, I think Ross is the best one I've ever heard describe this because Ross was close on both of those occasions and Ross will say that Michael had his moments where he did things that the normal Michael wouldn't do um, and both of those occasions are such examples where, you know, the red mist, you can call it red mist if you want, the absolute overriding desire to win at any cost um, but I can forgive him for those few little occasions. And I think if you talk to Damon, he's forgiven him as well. I mean, look, life moves oh, on. Damon has the ultimate respect Absolutely. for Michael Schumacher. Absolutely. Uh, now, look, we digress. We were talking about Mark Webber. Um, now, you say, obviously, proper racing driver. I did want to ask you about the Spanish Grand Prix in 2002, because obviously you'd had the high of Melbourne first race of the year. Four races later, we go to Spain not a great memory for nope. you and the team because you have the wing failures in practice. And front you and rear. <laughs> front and rear. Weber has the rear one on the pit straight. I'd like to know from a team perspective, but first from a Weber perspective, how did he deal with those failures and the fact that you withdrew the cars? No, well, he was pretty good actually because first of all, um, I've had a rear wing failure and it's not fun, right? It is really not fun. And he didn't come and complain about the car. We took a team decision with... Uh, with Tradossi, our engineer, to withdraw the cars. And it was hard because that year we had Azatec as a sponsor and a free engine supplier, and they were not impressed that we withdrew the cars. But the front wing, okay, it happens. It's not as dangerous, but a rear wing coming off at 300 k's is not funny. Um, and I had to take the responsible. I, I asked Gabriele Tradossi, our um, chief designer, I said, Gabrielle, can you tell me categorically that the other wings can't, can't, not, won't fail, can't fail. And he said, Paul, I can't. You know, we, we can test them, we have tested them, we can jump on them, we can stand on them. But to say that it can't fail, I can't give you that assurance. So I was, from a point of view of everybody's safety, um, I had to withdraw the cars. It was, it was a low point, but no, I don't recall Mark ever complaining about it. Um, probably, we didn't actually discuss it, to be honest, but probably he would have quietly thought 
thank God for that. Um, because Having been through that kind of thing before with Mercedes at correct. Le Mans. And, Especially mm, the fact mm. that he'd taken flight twice with the Mercedes. So, mm. um, yes, I think I think everybody agreed that we had to and, do it. And from a team point of view, you say Asia Tech weren't impressed, but did it cause you issues with, with Bernie Ecclestone, no, with other teams? Oh no, hell no. Bernie, Bernie was all for it. He, you know, Bernie's attitude was, you know, you, you've got to do what you've got to do. Um, no, there was no issues. I didn't, apart from the fact that obviously there was sadness from people in the team, but everybody understood, you know, there's a time when you do things, you know, and, and look, F1's all about risk. That's why we all love it so much. If I'd have, if, if Tredossi had said to me, Paul, I don't think you're going to fail, that would have been good enough. I would have then gone and asked both the drivers and said, what do you think? And if they both were happy to race, I would have said, okay. But when he said, I can't give you an assurance it's a bit like the old Bridgestone and Mitchell and tyres in 05 when Mitchell and couldn't give an assurance that the tyre wouldn't blow and the teams had to withdraw. Mm. Sad as it is, if there's a point where you really, really think something could be unsafe, you've, you've got to draw a line. Now, you sell Weber's contract to Jaguar, to Nicky Lauda, at the end of 02. Well, my interest in it. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. How many options were there on the table? Because I think at the end of 02, Weber... Well, I'd have loved to have kept him. Right, I, that's that's for starters. Right, I'd have loved to have kept him, but I needed. We were, we knew we weren't going to do another year with Asia Tech, so we needed an engine for O three. So it was really a no brainer. Um, sad as it was, because I've got the utmost respect for Mark. Um, I mean, honestly, you know, world champion at least once or twice he should have been. Fernando Alonso in the Minardi, the man from Spain driving for the Australian-Italian team, Paul Stoddart's Minardi team, has uh, given the Australian his life's ambition because they not only bought the team, he got it into the race and they've finished it. Wonderful. Let's talk about Fernando Alonso. Did you know what you were putting in your car in 2001? Pretty much. I'll tell you for why. Because being a competitor to him in Formula 3000 in 2000, I saw him drive that wet race in Spa that year. Which he which won. Which was, he won, which was a masterpiece of driving. And so my knowledge of Fernando was that he'd come to my attention throughout that year in 2000, but he was never out of my mind after that brilliant race in Spa. Okay, that's interesting because Bruno Junquiera had won the championship that year and he was in the running to get the Williams drive with Jensen Button for 2000, didn't get it. But all the talk pre-season was about Bruno and not Fernando. So, But Fernando in those days, and, and still even when he was with us, um, was very quiet, very unassuming, just got on and did the job. And it took, I suppose, a race like Spa to where I was actually genuinely watching the whole race, not just catching highlights, as you quite often did with um, Formula 3000 races. I watched that race. And what I saw in him that day was, this is a guy that's destined to be world champion, even before he'd even got in an F1 car. And I wasn't wrong. Except he should add four, not two. And then when he got in one of your cars, can you tell us a little bit about what you saw that confirmed your view? Well, we've already touched on it. So, first race, Melbourne, 2001. A car that has had one straight-line test for 50 kilometres. That's all it had. And he wrings its neck and brings it home in 12th place. 
Now, if you want another, so that's the first race he does for me. The last race he does for me is Zuka in 01. 53 laps again. So Fernando, in those days, we still had the Sunday morning warm-up, and it was a tradition that if a driver was leaving, that you took all the fuel out of the car and you let him have a glory lap. And that was all agreed with me. I was called to a team principals meeting, didn't whilst that Sunday qualifying was uh, Sunday warm up was going on, and Fernando had, for whatever reason, him and his engineer Alex had disagreed about him having a glory run. So Alex put fuel in the car. So Fernando didn't really get his glory lap, and he came and very few, few times that actually Fernando complained. But that was one of them. He came straight to me, and I'd just come out of a team. I didn't even know about it, and he said I didn't get my glory lap. You know, they put fuel in my car. I said, look, I can't do anything about it. I'm really sorry, Fernando. I, I did say to give you the glory lap, you know, so I was at ease with him, but Fernando wasn't going to leave it at that. If anyone looks at the history of that race in Suzuka 01, Fernando put in 53 qualifying laps. And if ever the world needed to know how good he was, look at the tapes on Suzuka 2001. It says it all. How early in that season did you know that you were going to lose him? To, oh, to... I knew I was going to lose him. Um, you know, Flavio had the contract. Um, he was only on, well, loan, lease, whatever you want to call it, but he was only with us for 2001. Now, now Fernando was not happy about that, and he certainly wasn't happy about doing a year testing with uh, Renault the next year. He wanted to stay in the race seat, and I was happy to keep him in the race seat, but they wanted him as test driver. My dream team, my dream team, was Mark Webber and Fernando in the same car. Amazing. And apparently that nearly happened at Did. Ferrari, didn't yep. it? Uh, I think. Um, are you surprised that Fernando's still going? No, I'm, I'm not really surprised because if you're good enough, and Fernando is good enough, if you are determined enough and you have still got that fire in your belly to want to go out there and if they can't win the race, do the best possible thing you can do, then he's certainly no slouch. So he's still up there with them and... The racecraft, the ability, the natural talent, the hunger, it's all still there. None of it's gone away. Now, age is going to catch up with him, but it hasn't yet. I reckon he's got a few years left, and I think he'll be a massive asset to Aston Martin, provided there's no politics in the team. If Fernando's left to do what Fernando can do, which is be a team leader, drag Lance Stroll up the ladder a little bit, gets the backing. I mean, the team is a fantastic team. I mean, you've got to go right back to the Jordan days. It's a fantastic team. And I think if you get Fernando leading that team and being able to influence that team, you're going to have a happy Fernando and a happy Lance Stroll because at the end of the day, that team will go forward. Is that the crucial point, though, that Fernando Alonso has to be the main man? He does. And that's the only caveat I put on this move. If they don't recognise what a champion they've got, it's to their detriment. Because if you work with Fernando... You get everything. If you work against him, we all know the results. 2003, you replaced Weber with Jos Verstappen. It was his last Formula One contract. First up, how quick was Jos? Oh, Jos was quick. Um, now, that's um, let's just say that Jos had lost nothing. But bear in mind, I'd worked with Jos. I'd worked with him in 97 with Tyrrell, in 2000 with Arrows, and then obviously 2003 with us. So I knew how quick Jos was. I knew that even though you might argue he was getting on in his career, that, again, the hunger was there, he was up for it. Um, but sadly, in 2003, we really didn't have the car for him. It was just how it was. 
did you see any traits in him that we're now seeing in, in the boy Max? Well, I saw it in Max. So <laughs> in, uh, I think it was August or September that year, we held an event with the two-seaters, all eight of them, um, at Rockingham. And we had one of the first ever Formula One simulators that had just coming out in those days. And uh, so anyway, this very young, cheeky Max is saying to Jos, come on, Dad, I want to have a race with you in the simulators. So eventually Jos gave in and had a race with Max. You want, to tell, you want me to tell you or you tell me who won the race? <laughs> I think we can guess. Max knows. Really? Max did. And Max aged <clears throat> very small. Yeah. This is, uh, Max would have been, what were we talking, 2003 would have been five or six, somewhere there. So, um, yeah, he showed what he's got back in as early as that. And, uh, you know, we are not surprised, you know, with Sophie and her background, um, his mother, obviously, and uh, and Yoss's background, why would you be surprised? Um, perhaps as to how good he is, but I also remember seeing him at the Autosport Awards before he joined Toro Rosso. And again, he was with Raymond Vermillion, the uh, manager, and he was so shy at those awards and so nervous. And I, I thought, oh, God, Max, I hope you can get through this. Um, and, of course, he did. And, you know, he went on to great things. It was, I think, Toro Rosso saw very early in the stages he was the chosen one. Um, then, of course, going in in Barcelona and winning the first race. I mean, it doesn't get any better than that. And, yes, a two-time world champion, but I think we all know there's a lot more to come. Now, you mentioned Red Bull, you mentioned Toro Rosso, so perhaps now's a good time just to talk about the sale. Bernie introduced you to Red so Bull So it's Turkey 2005 <laughs> in Bernie's motorhome. Minardi had, had... Had you told Bernie that you were looking for a way Oh, the whole world knew. Okay. Right? So we'd had, at that point, 48 offers. In fact, I'm not going to do it, but in this drawer is a 10 million euro bounce check from one of the previous contenders. And the check was so bad that we got our bank. You can't really get to a German bank and say, you know, is this check any good? It just came back insufficient funds. So I finally got our manager to ring. And they said, if you took all the zeros off it, we still wouldn't cash it. So it was complete fraud. Um, so I'd had 47 previous contenders. At that point, Eddie Irvine was conducting, he was in Fianza that weekend, conducting due diligence from buyer number 47, actually in the factory in Italy, whilst Bernie's got me in the motorhome. And so I won't say the price, but basically I walk in, I meet Dieter Mattersheets for the first time, and in 10 minutes the deal was done. We shook hands, and that's all you do with Bernie and with Dieter Mattersheets. We shook hands, and I had certain things. I wanted all the staff to be kept on. I wanted to stay in fans. They were my conditions because um, I wasn't going to sell them out. And Dita said yes to both of those things. And he only caveat he put on it. Well, actually, he didn't. We just shook hands and that was a quick meeting. But then I dealt with his number two. And uh, we basically agreed that if there were any staff that he couldn't keep, that they'd get paid a full year's salary, no question asked. So that was on the Turkey weekend. We announced it in Spa when we'd signed the deal. And that was pretty emotional. And then, of course, the last race in China um, was also emotional. But we went through it. And then I remember 24th of October 2005 in London in the Red Bull solicitor's offices. And we're actually signing the final contract. They're transferring money and everything. 
And I remember two things from Dieter Mateschitz. He said I was drinking Red Bull. So first of all, I was told that Mr Mateschitz does not drink champagne, that all his deals are toasted with Red Bull. So the toast we were talking about was in Spa. We were in the solicitor's office in October. We signed the contract, etc. Um, and he did everything, every single thing was just honoured to the nth degree. And he paid some people like Giancarlo Minardi, he paid them more than he had to pay, right? It, you could not, I mean, honestly, you could not have a word, and I will not have a word said against Red Bull or Dieter Mateschitz. Um, they just honoured everything, and where there was any doubt on anything, they honoured it anyway. Just brilliant, brilliant proper people to deal with. What drove you to sell the team? Money. We could see that uh, that we were struggling every year. I mean, budgets are 20, 30, 40 million. There's just nothing in Formula One. It was a graft and an effort. It was relentless trying to find sponsors, trying to find money, because you're always going to be running around the back of the grid. It's a vicious circle. You're in a position where you don't have 150, 200 million to run, and Therefore, you're not going to attract the good sponsors. You know, I was selling sponsorship that big teams were getting 50 mil for. I was selling it for a mil. That's just the reality of the situation. Now, there was a new Concord Agreement coming out in 06, and it had a couple of Minardi provisions in it. We were the only team allowed to continue using the V12, uh, V10 engine, rather, um, right through till I think it was end of 06 or whatever. But we were, you know, everyone else had to go to V8s, but we didn't. Um, that was a cost reason because we were building our own engines. Um, and so I just knew that it was time to go. You know, I, I, I love Formula 1, I still love Formula 1. And, and luckily, 20 years later, or, you know, 17 years later, um, we're still using the two-seater. We're still getting the buzz. You know, the two-seater is brilliant. You know, through four and a half thousand passengers, 70 drivers, nine or ten of them world champions. Um, that, that, gives my, that gives me my F1 fix. Was it ever discussed you staying at the team? No. Oh no. After the Red Bulls. No, 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 no. They um, right from day one, it was an absolute buyout. Um, so there was no question of me staying on. I just wanted to make sure that my staff and fans were going to be protected, and that the factory wasn't going to close. Now I'm sure Red Bull had plenty of times when they would have wanted to have closed Fanza, move it, do whatever. No. They honoured, much more than I could ever have expected, they honoured every part of that agreement. And only three years later, the team wins a race with Sebastian Vettel at Monza. Well, did you take I, a little bit of pleasure from I was from crying. Yeah. I don't mind admitting it. And I did a lot of press interviews that day and I couldn't help saying that it's Minardi's first victory <laughs> and then correcting myself and saying Toro Rosso. But no, it was, um, it was unbelievable. Um, but I'll tell you... I saw the emotions, obviously it wasn't there, but I saw the emotions on TV. It wasn't any more than it was in Melbourne in 2002. Because still, as I said before, to this day, everyone thinks we won that race. But yes, no, well done, Sebastian. By the way, were there any ramifications of you being on that podium in 2002? No. You know, Ron said, no. oh, it's all sorted. It's no, all so it was all sorted. <laughs> it wasn't. Okay. Both Bernie and Max had been spoken to. Um, yeah. I think the fact that they did play uh, Still Call Australia home um, probably saved the day if they'd have played the national anthem, which they were going to do. I think we might have been into a bit of trouble. One of the drums that you banged very hard back in the day was budget caps, yep. reducing the costs in Formula One. Of course, that is now happening. 
But go back to the early 2000s when you were saying we need to reduce costs. How was that received by the establishment? And I'm talking Ron Dennis at McLaren. Well, I'm talking Jean Todd at Ferrari. Well, Ron, bless him, he's uh, had an interesting relationship with Ron because if we go back to the uh, um, Friday the 13th, 2003, um, press conference, um, I'd been in Ron's motorhome beforehand and he said to me, Paul, you know, I'm sorry, but um, if the heat's too much, you know, you've got to get out of the kitchen, you know, you've got to pay your way, etc., etc." And I had a lot to say that day, but the next race, which was France, which was Manly Cause in 2003, was probably, and not a lot of people know this, but it was probably, well, it was, it was, it was all going to come to a head in a big way um, because I, I won't mention who it was this time, but a certain person in authority had suggested to me that all the cars in 2003 were running illegally because traction control had been banned. And, of course, I kept scrutinising my 2001 car because we used to use it for demos at all the two-seater events. So I had a legitimate scrutinised 2001 car that was 100% legal. And it might have been a suggestion to make this um, fighting fund move on a little bit that uh, perhaps I ought to suggest to everybody that I've just realised that all the cars in 2003 were running illegally and that I'd changed my cars and I was going to run my scrutineered 2001 cars at that event and I suggest everybody else sort theirs out. Now, a lot of people, again, I'm going to watch the names here, but a lot of people knew this was happening. A lot of team principals knew this was happening. And it got to the point where Bernie had called a team owners meeting up in the, his block. And there's a lovely picture of me and Ron walking down the hill where coming back from that meeting where he's got his arm on my shoulder. And what he's actually saying is, Paul, I'll give you one thing. You've got big balls. I promise you, don't go any further with this trashing control issue. I promise you that I will get that fighting fund. It was 2.8 million. I will get that fighting fund through for you. And if I don't, I'll put it in myself. And true to that, from that day onwards, Ron and I got on fine. And he's coming about if the heat in the kitchen, you know, it's too much, get out. And I was lucky enough that year to have soup in Ron's kitchen at the uh, McLaren Technical Centre. And it was very good soup. And we were, we were good from that day onwards. But um, sometimes you have to fight. You know, you have to fight. Now, would I have gone through with that? No, I would not. Um, I was always prepared to play the politics to a level. But at any point where it interfered with the proper racing, I would have withdrawn. Either in Melbourne in 2005 or in Manny Cause in 2003, I would never let the politics ruin the racing. We're all there for the racing. We all love the racing. But sometimes, as particularly as a back-of-the-grid team, you need to actually flex your muscles. You need to you need to stand up for yourself, otherwise you'll just be run over. You know, it's not called the Piranha Club for nothing. There was talk of you coming back in 2008. Yes, there was. Um, I did look at it seriously. Um, at that point, I felt there was just a chance that the new teams would, because don't forget there'd been a new Concord Agreement, there was a lot more money involved now. Um, and I felt that at that point in time we had a chance, but Dave Richards was also looking at it and I felt that we didn't have his resources and I didn't feel I could go through it again, so we didn't put up a formal bid. We, we, we did go through the motions, we did look at it. I had an engine supplier, I had all the equipment to build a car, but not 
guaranteed enough money to run a competitive so, team. So when David Richards and ProDrive didn't take that 12th entry, how did you feel about that? I still felt that even more assured that I'd done the right thing. By not going in. By not going in, because if Dave Richards and ProDrive felt it was too risky, then thank goodness I did too. <laughs> Okay, gut reaction. How, how much of all of your big decisions have been led by your gut? All of them. That's what you do. Um, good, bad or ugly, you do it. And like Bernie, I'm a person that if I shake somebody's hand, it doesn't matter what the paperwork says, it's the deal that you do. And if you honour that deal, you're not going to go far wrong in life. Yeah. Well, look, final one from me, Paul. Thank you so much for your time. It's just what do you make of F1 today? I think they've now gone to a level where... I'm not sure it's an F1 car as much as a spaceship these days. Um, and I'm interested to see how they do continue to keep to the cost cap because the cost cap is set about the right place, in my belief. But it's good, and it's still good racing. And I, and I, I really welcome, I'll say Ross Braun, but obviously there are other people like Pat Simmons and that involved. But certainly the changes made last year have given us uh, some really, really good racing now. You know, the cars can overtake. They're not going to be washed out the minute they get behind the car in front of them. Um, so I think in that respect, I think the tech regs are in the right place. I worry about the technology but that's just probably because i'm in the 60s and i'm used to having lovely loud engines and all that kind of good stuff so i guess if i was given it a mark out of 10 it's probably an eight or a nine it's not too bad and what do you make of you know teams being profitable yeah that's an interesting thing um you can actually make money in f1 these days um i think the reason now don't get me wrong back in the day when we said that Toyota invested in 2001, second half of 01 and all of 02, 1.5 billion. Um, but in those days, Ferrari, McLaren, they were all spending four and 500 mil. If you didn't put a cost cap in, it would have got to the point where only one or two or three teams could ever be successful. Whereas today, you can have your moments where, you know, a... Um, Alpha Tari, as it was, you know, can win with Pierre Gasly. Um, someone else can win. You know, you can get the odd wins, which I think is what keeps people excited. You know, it's the, the, the power of the underdog is unbelievable. The people want to support. They want to see different people win races. They don't want to see Ferraris and Mercedes and even Red Bull um, to just keep winning all the races. And I think we're in a position now where... We've certainly got some good drivers in F1. Um, you know, this, this, I can think of six people that deserve to be world champion. They won't all well, um, end up there because of the cars that they're driving, but put them in the right car. And you're not just talking about the ones and the twos, as you might have been doing in years gone by. You're talking about almost half the field is capable of being world champion. Um, so I'm very impressed with the driving standards. I'm very impressed with the lack of stupid accidents. They still happen, but lack of stupid accidents that have happened in you know lap one incidents where people have got red mist and don't really think about what they're doing. Melbourne 2002. Melbourne 2002 <laughs> being a great example. Um, but you also nowadays can make money, as you rightly say, with Formula One. and uh, And that's tempting, but... I, it's, I'm, I'm too far gone for it now. <laughs> I'll just sit back and watch it. <laughs> Paul, it's been so awesome to speak to you. Thank you very, very much for your time. My pleasure, Tom. So many stories, all brilliantly told. 
Paul's memories of his time at Minardi are so interesting, right down to the sale of the team to Dietrich Mateschitz and Red Bull. The deal was done in 10 minutes. It's quite extraordinary. I particularly like hearing his thoughts on the drivers, especially Mark Webber and Fernando Alonso. To think that Fernando put in plenty of all-nighters helping to build the car ahead of the team's first race under Paul in 2001 gives us great insight into Fernando, as did Paul's thoughts on what Aston Martin need to do to keep Fernando happy this year. Paul, it was great to have you on the show. Thank you for your time. And I look forward to seeing you in Melbourne next weekend. As ever, please send in your thoughts and stories about Paul. Do you remember Alonso in a Minardi in 2001? Or what about Weber's amazing fifth place at Albert Park just a year later? Let me know. I'm at Tom Clarkson F1 on Twitter or use the hashtag F1 Beyond the Grid. Which brings me on to what you sent in about Alain Prost after last week's show. Let's start with this from Trevor Thompson. Possibly one of the most underrated greats who had an outstanding turn of speed. The win at Kailami in 82 after a puncture, then two seconds faster than the rest of the grid at Ricard in 83, the comeback through the field to clinch the World Drivers' Championship in 1985 at Brands Hatch, Belgium 86, Suzuka 89 before the crash, etc. Lots of great memories, says Trevor. And I agree with you, Alain was hugely fast and he's also a fascinating interviewee. I always love talking to him. Next, let's hear this from Jackson Vincelette. What a bit of journalism. I listened to this with a Senna hat on. I have artwork of the Lotus 97T and 99T at home. Before this, I thought the greatest rivalry in sports was one-sided. I thoroughly enjoyed hearing Prost's perspective and the deaf way Clarkson welcomed it from him. Well, I'm blushing, Jackson. Thank you for the note. I really appreciate it. And never forget, that Prost is a fascinating man and a great interview. He tells it like it is. Finally, let's hear this from Adrian King. A curious listen, says Adrian. It was as if the FW15C in 1993 was a poor car. Alan didn't seem at all grateful for the opportunity to drive what was arguably the most advanced and dominant car in the history of the sport. That's an interesting take, Adrian. Um, I think Alain comes across as honest, honest about how the car didn't suit his style that well. But it's great to hear from you. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, that is almost it for this week. If you want to hear more from Minardi's former drivers, we've got interviews with Mark Webber and Fernando Alonso in our back catalogue. There are links to those episodes in the description. And thank you for your ratings and reviews, and please keep them coming. If you're listening on Spotify, you can now use the Q&A box to tell us what you think of each episode. So have a go at that. And one more thing, please check out the F1 Nation review of the Saudi Arabian Grand Prix. Among lots of talking points, we get fantastic insight from Pedro de la Rosa on Fernando Alonso's grid penalty. Just search for F1 Nation to listen to that. I'll be back next week with a really insightful episode featuring one of Formula One's brightest stars. I hope you'll join me for that. But for now, thanks for listening. F1 Beyond the Grid is produced by F1 and Audio Boom Studios. Until next time, keep it flat out. Listener.